Alrighty, so today we're talking about how to find life, love and freedom. That's what we're on about as a church and that's what we're offering the people of our city. And um, that's the question, what is the key to life? Uh, what makes for a full and complete and fulfilling life? The way we use life in our society, it's very um, revealing. Uh, you know, if someone works too much, we say, you need to get a life. Uh, if you feel you are working too much and you're very busy and you don't have enough time to see friends and relax, you feel like, ugh, I don't have a life, I need to get a life. And um, many parents, uh, I'm a parent of three kids, we feel like, oh, the life's been taken from us. You know, what happened to my life? Uh, often parents feel, and people are having much less kids these days. Why? Because they, they want a life and kids are going to impose upon that. So what do we mean by life? I take it that when we think about life, we're not always thinking about biological life, but when we think about kind of life and I want life, I want a good life, we're actually thinking about uh, the quality of life. And in particular in the West, what makes a good life, we equate life with choice. So when we say, I'm working too much, I've got kids, I'm busy, I don't have a life, really we are saying, I don't have choice. That's what these things have taken from us. And that's one of the reasons why in our culture we idolise youth, because that is the age at which you have the most choice and the least constraint, the most life. Uh, but this vision of life which is all choice, it actually has some problems uh, that are really quite tragic. The truth is that constraint, giving up choice, is essential to finding community and finding meaning in life. You can't have community without constraint, without limiting your choices. Community, by definition, ties you to a group of people in a particular place and time. And yet, we're living in a time where to have life, uh, that, that means choice, and we're living in a time of a generation who are deeply lonely, but will never stop being lonely because we think life is all about choice. And if you're all about choice, you're never going to limit your choices and never actually uh, limit yourself to a particular group of people. Um, and what this actually leads us to is... Where life is choice, it leaves us completely unprepared for the challenges of work and children and middle age or even chronic sickness. In our culture, we almost have no resources to deal with what happens in life when your choices are taken away from you, whether that's because of sickness or whether you're in a situation that you can't get out of. And so if life is choice then you are in danger of not having a life by external things. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus Christ speaks often about life. And what does he mean when he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full? He's offering you fullness of life, but he may not be offering you fullness of choice. What does he mean by that? Well, one of the best places to go to understand that is this story that Tiff just read for us about Jesus' interaction that he has with a woman in the heat of the day where he starts talking about the waters of life. 
Uh, it's one of a number of stories in the Gospels where Jesus meets a woman and treats her with such respect and dignity. In their day, absolutely shocking, but in our day, it's wonderful uh, we read these kinds of things. And I want to summarize the story for you, uh, kind of draw some things out, and then I want to talk about, okay, what does this story say life is about? And then I want to compare that to what our society says the meaning and point of life is. So let me summarize this story. Jesus is traveling with his disciples. He's hot, he's thirsty, and he comes to a well in Sychar in a place called Samaria, and he sits down beside a well, and he has no bucket. There's a rope, but you've got to bring your bucket to this well, and he has no bucket. His friends, the disciples, they go into town to get some Guzman and Gomez, bit of Mad Max, bit of Mexican takeaway to bring back to him. He's hot, he's exhausted from this long walk that he's been going on, and a woman comes out from the village to draw water from the well. She's got a bucket, he doesn't. And as she comes, he asks her for a drink of water because she's got a bucket. And she is surprised, disoriented by his request. She says... Um, verse 9, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, in our culture, we, you know, it's very rare in Australian culture to have two communities that have such animosity toward one another. I noticed um, Sam Wan, who's a part of this congregation, he just went on a recent trip to Israel and he said the hostility between the Jews and the Palestinians is just nuts, like the Jews literally building walls to keep. And that's interesting, but in Jesus' day, the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans was very intense. I'm told that if, if I'm a Jew and you're a Samaritan and you walk past me and I'm drinking a cup of water or something, if your shadow covered over the cup that I'm drinking out of, then that would just be outrageous. I would burn, destroy, and bury that cup. So offensive uh, was even just the, the shadow of a Samaritan considered. And that's why this woman is shocked, because she's a Samaritan woman and he is a Jewish man, and yet he sparks up a conversation with her. Not only is it ethnic, but it's also gendered in that culture men random men didn't talk to random women but it's also that she is an outcast so this is the middle of the day and in the middle east you don't do heavy work in the middle of the day the women would come out to the well in the morning and in the evening when the sun wasn't so hot and that's when you draw you know heavy water and carry it back to your home but here she is when the women don't usually draw water from the well, why is she there at this time? It's because she's trying to avoid people. She's an outcast. And, uh, and we find out why later on. And so he asks her for a drink, and she says, how do you ask, what are you, me? You're asking me? And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water, the waters of life. And so notice Jesus says to this woman, God has a present for you. He's got a present. He wants to give you a present. 
And if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask me for that present because I've come to give you God's gift, living water. She says, but you've got no bucket. <laughs> and he says, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become within them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's his promise to you today, uh, that if you come to him, he will give you living water that will well up to eternal life. Now, I take it that you're able to see Jesus playing with a metaphor here. He's operating on two levels. One is the physical level of physical thirst, that for all of us, thirst is one of the most important drives and things that go, one of the most important needs that we have, a need for water. And in part, living in a Western wealthy society, we don't often think about this, uh, this need very often, and that's because when was the last time you were without water and thought you were going to die without it? Uh, in the ancient world, this was very real. I've had this experience a couple of times. I am a little bit melodramatic in telling you this story. I've probably told you about this. But um, I remember a number of years ago, I entered a, a running race from Bundina to Otford, just south of Sydney, about 30 kilometres along the beaches through the Royal National Park. And um, I'd just come off one, a month earlier, I'd just completed an Ironman triathlon. And... Uh, Ironman triathlon, they are very long. It's a 3.6K swim, 180K ride, and then a 42K run. So it's like swimming from the Harbour Bridge to Watson's Bay, then cycling to Newcastle, and then going for a marathon after that. And I did that. It took me 12 hours. And at the end of that, you, you kind of pass through the finishing thing, and they say, Toby Neal, you are an Iron Man. And I'm like, yeah, heck yeah, I'm an Iron Man. Anyway, a month later, I enter this running race, and I'm like, I'm an Iron Man, 30 kilometers. That's easy, I'm an Iron Man. Anyway, so did not respect this race at all. I went out with friends the night before it, had a couple of glasses of wine, didn't get to bed till like 12.30 at night, woke up at 4.30 to get down to the Royal National Park, a little bit underprepared, a little bit already dehydrated. I entered this race not realising that I'm in the National Park, like there isn't water <laughs> in the National Park. I remember in the middle of this race, I was just, I, w I thought I was going to die, like I, I literally thought I was going to die, and I'm like, I was so thirsty, and I start praying, I'm like, God, I'm, I'm like dying here, and there's no one walking past me, I, and anyway, I'm like, God, help me, what am I going to do, and all of a sudden it started to rain, and I went over to this big palm frond, and I'm like, ah, <laughs> full bear grills, and finally got some water, but that experience of not having water, it was very painful. That's the closest, I wasn't going to die, I'm being melodramatic, but um, it, it, that is a very intense, and Jesus is kind of equating that, that on a physical level, thirst, you will die without water if you don't have water in three days. But he's operating at another level, because you can be living in Sydney and have enough food, enough water, enough shelter, and yet be desperately sad, unwell on the point of suicide, that there are physical needs, but there are also emotional, 
psychological, you might call them spiritual needs. And Jesus is saying, just as your body needs water to live, so too your soul needs living water to live, and I have come to give you that. That's what Jesus is talking about. He claims that he is the one who can give the water that satisfies our deepest thirst that wells up to eternal life. So what is life about? What is it that he's offering? Well, before I answer that, I want to look at the, the various ways that our culture answers this question about what life is all about. So what is life about? How do we satisfy our deepest thirst? What leads to a, a full and complete life? What is the point of life? And some people in our society would say that life is about survival. If you trace the history of thought, uh, this really was what the point of life. point of life was to propagate the species. We're just trying to survive day by day. So in 1995, Richard Dawkins, the Oxford biologist, he famously said, humans have always wondered about the meaning of life, but life has no higher purpose than to perpetuate the survival of our DNA. What's he saying? He's saying we are simply atoms and molecules. I'm just another form of life on this planet, and the purpose of life is to survive, replicate, and die. That's what life's about. A tad empty, a tad unfulfilling, so most of us don't wake up every morning and go, survival, that is what my life is about. So then, what do we come up with? So then it became the, the key to life was success. You've got to study hard, work hard, get a job, save up, get a house, and that's what life is about. But the problem with this success being the meaning of your life is that if you're successful in your career and making a lot of money, then wow, you have a lot of meaning in your life. You have life. But what happens if your career takes a sudden, unexpected, disappointing turn? You run out of life. Like, and, and you lose the will to live because the thing that was life what life was about was the things that you were achieving. And so if life is all about success, what you're able to achieve in your career uh, and things like that, then your life is very vulnerable to external forces or even internal forces. When external forces come and take away your achievements, you get angry at the world, but sometimes it's not external forces that mean you fail in life, it's your, own, it's, your own, it's your own abilities. And so either you're blaming the world or you're blaming yourself. And, uh, and so this makes us frantic and angry in life. I wonder if you saw the 2020 Pixar film Soul. Anyone see that? Beautiful movie about a jazz musician, Joe Gardner, who is uh, like a primary school teacher, a high school music teacher teaching kids how to play music and they sound terrible, <laughs> you know, that's what he gives his life to. And he's a jazz musician, he dreams of playing with like the best jazz musicians in New York City. But he, and on the day he finally gets a gig with the best jazz musicians, you remember, he falls in a drain and dies and enters the great beyond. And, and he gets into the great beyond, the afterlife, and he feels like, you know, my life was pointless. I didn't achieve the, 
purpose of my life, like I missed out on something, like that was it, that day was going to be it. I was finally going to have achieved the, the purpose of my life, success, and that was taken away from me before I experienced that. And, um, and obviously he's wrong, he comes to the realisation, no, 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 playing in a jazz club with these great, that would have been nice, but that wasn't the purpose of life. And he realised that when he made the purpose of his life his success, he ended up living a very shallow, self-centred world. Uh, and he actually missed out on what life is really about. And so, if it's not success, if that's not what life is about, then what is it? Well, then comes happiness. Uh, it's got to be happiness, right? And that's why you and I, when we were raised as kids, you and I were told, hey, it doesn't matter what you do in life, you don't need to succeed at life, so long as you're happy, right? Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, can you imagine your grandfather's father saying to him in the 1920s, hey, son, doesn't matter what you do in life, so long as you're happy. <laughs> they would, so this is a very modern thing, right? That the meaning of life, the point of life, is to pursue your own happiness. And so for our generation, you've got to do whatever it takes to make you happy. And that's why every graduation speech starts in primary school. I'm there at the graduate, my, my daughter's in year six, and they get up and say, hey, kids, you know, you can do anything you want. Just do what makes you happy. But after 50 years of being told this, people are starting to realise that this, this worldview that's thrust on, on us, it's actually quite burdensome. Because what psychologists are telling us is that actually you, you, you'll never find happiness by pursuing happiness. It's like, um, it's like looking for a rainbow. You'll never find a, a rainbow by chasing, by going into it. You, you see a rainbow adjacent to it. And similar with happiness, you'll never find happiness by pursuing happiness. You only find happiness by pursuing other things and then happiness comes alongside that. It's an accidental byproduct of something else. And so if you tell people, do whatever it takes to make you happy, you've got to try harder and then you start thinking, well, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? And so one commentator said, at least for our parents who are pursuing success, uh, you know, at least they knew when they had achieved the purpose of their life. They got the job. They got married. They got the house. But for us, when we're told the purpose of your life is to be happy, well, when am I ever sure that I've actually arrived at that? Like, am I happy now? I'm not, I'm not sure. Ah, what's the meaning of my life? And as a result, we're more tired, stressed, busy, unhappy, selfish, because we keep pursuing our own individual happiness. And so that's why Paul Dolan, in his book, says that the key to life is purpose. So Paul Do Dolan is a... Uh, a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics, and he wrote this book, Happiness by Desire. He has a PhD on happiness. He studied this, and he looks like a happy guy, doesn't he? Like, who wears white glasses? Like, you're going to be happy to wear white glasses. But anyway, in this book, he argues that it's, you know, the point of life is not pleasure, it's not experiences, 
He says the point of life is finding, is, is purpose. You've got to find your purpose. And um, so he says there are many things that are pleasurable in life, like eating pizza on a Friday night in front of your favourite Netflix TV series. I've only just got into Peaky, Peaky Blinders, like yesterday. I was watching it yesterday. It's awesome, right? Anyway, so there's happiness. I'm watching Peaky Blinders. Peaky, Peaky Blinders, what it's called, yeah. And uh, that brings me a certain amount of pleasure, but it's pretty empty pleasure. It has no purpose to it. So there are things that bring you pleasure. And then he says there are other things that bring you purpose, but aren't so pleasurable, like studying for an exam, purposeful, not so pleasurable, uh, helping your friend move house, Purposeful, not pleasurable. Please don't ask me. I hate, hate moving house. Or giving birth to a child, I'm told, is not very pleasurable, but is full of purpose. And so in the end, if it has purpose, it may not be pleasurable, but it will lead to happiness. That it's the, the things that have purpose in life that you give your life to, they are the things that will be, by, will be fulfilling by definition. And that's why psychologists these days are saying this is the key to life. You need to find your purpose. You need to have a fulfilling life. You need to do what you do. You know, you got to find your passion in life. But the problem with that, that is that purpose implies design. So um, in order for something to have a purpose, it, it must have been designed for that purpose. In order to find the meaning of your life, you've got to know what your purpose is, and you can't know your meaning unless uh, you've been designed, and you're only designed if there's a God. And so that's why BuzzFeed ran an article a couple of years ago where the, um, the author of this article asked a whole bunch of leading atheist thinkers how they find meaning in a purposeless universe. And uh, Jerry Coyne, a... Uh, scientist said, people like me don't worry about what it's all about in a cosmic sense because we know it isn't about anything. It's what we make of this transitory experience. Or Alam Shahar, the author of The Young Atheist's Handbook, he says, yes, of course, I know that life is ultimately without meaning or purpose, but the trick is not to wake up every morning and feel that way. <laughs> Cognitive dissonance, embrace it. Create a sense of meaning and purpose by doing something useful with your life. And that's the common refrain uh, among secular people today. They don't believe in a God who's designed us, so there is no absolute meaning to life. There is no absolute purpose. There's only the purpose that you ascribe to your own life. But the problem with that is, that's like a country trying to print its own money. You know, when a country prints its own money, it's valueless. They just keep on printing, printing, printing. Inflation skyrockets because money has to be linked to something extrinsic. It's like when you're driving a car and you stop at a traffic light and you feel like you're going backwards. In that moment, you need an external reference point in order to gauge where you are at and what is going on. So you look outside and you see a tree, you see a building, you go, Okay, I'm not rolling backwards, that car's moving forwards. And in life, you know, you can ascribe meaning to your own life, but ultimately it's like printing your own money. Uh, you need a meaning in life. Everyone's saying that these days, even secular people.
But the problem with creating your own meaning is that there is, there is no meaning to that. It's interesting, there's an article by, uh, on the New York, in the New York Times by an atheist writer, and uh, where, where have I written it? Uh, he says, um, that the title of it is something like, there is no meaning of life, get over it. And in the article, he explores the fact that, you know, uh, why is it that we get so outraged by tsunamis killing people, cancer killing kids and things like that? It, this is just life. Just accept it. And yet the reality is we can't accept that. That when a tsunami hits a country and people die, we cry out in outrage, this ought not to be. But that implies that you believe that there is a way things should be, that things are designed, that things actually have meaning. And, uh, and that's why creating your own meaning, ultimately, it's self-referential and you need an external reference point. So if it's not purpose, you know, if the purpose of my life is to find purpose, that then becomes a little bit uh, self-referential. So if it's not purpose, then what is it? And, uh, and perhaps it's relationships. This is Robert Waldinger, and he gave one of the most um, watched TED Talks of all time. He's a Harvard professor who uh, explored this Harvard study, the, the longest study of human beings ever created, or one of the longest studies of human beings ever created, was this study by Harvard where they investigated, where they uh, looked at the lives of 750 men over a period of 75, 80 years. I think the study's still going. And they studied these men's lives to try and work out, well, what leads to a good life? And his conclusion, what leads to a good life, had nothing to do whether you've paid your house off or not, had nothing to do with whether you own a million dollars or not, had nothing to do whether you're a CEO or not. What it came down to was this, the quality of your relationships. Am I being loved? Am I loving someone? Not just romantic relationships, but the quality of relationships. And uh, you had quality relationships, you live longer, you're happier, all your well-being stats are much higher. So somehow, we've been created for relationship. And we feel most full, that life is most rich, fulfilling, we feel like we're flourishing most when our relationships are going well. And when they're not, we do very, very poorly. A number of years ago, I went on a surf trip in my 20s. I went on a surf trip to Indonesia where you know, some of the best waves in the world are. And none of my friends could come with me, so I just went by myself, hopped on a boat, surf trip to Sumbawa, Lombok, ended up at this little surf break called Scar Reef. And um, you know, we arrived there in the middle of the night, woke up in the morning, and it was just pristine, perfect six-foot waves barreling across this left-hand uh, reef break called Scar Reef for a reason because everyone hits the reef and you know cuts themselves up, which is what happened to me. Uh, but it was interesting, you know, perfect waves, but I had no one to share it with. And ultimately, it was pretty empty, and I wasn't very happy there. I was, I was you, know, you know, a couple of years ago, I went on a surf trip up the coast of New South Wales to a place called Seal Rocks with a group of my friends, and there was no surf. It was so small. I couldn't even take out my surfboard, so I had to take out my long 
foamy. And anyway, we paddled out on our foamies. Were you there? Yeah, you were there. Yeah, we were there. You were there. Anyway, we paddled out on these foamies, Tom and I and Emilio and a couple of others, and we had the best time. It was a lot of fun. We were catching the same waves, high-fiving each other on the waves. It was small. It, was, it wasn't great waves, but we were sharing it with each other. And that experience, even though the waves weren't as good, uh, was a much more rich, fulfilling experience of life. Why is that? Because we've been made for relationships. This is, um, this is Sophie Scott, and she's got a TED Talk. She's a neuroscientist, and she looks at the science of laughter. And she found that human beings were 20 times more likely to laugh at something if they were with someone that they know and trust. You know, and so it's not what's happening to us that makes us laugh. It's not that I'm a bad comedian that you're not laughing, right? It's that you don't trust anyone around you, right? Uh, so it's, 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 it's who we share the experience with. What makes life meaningful and the joy we get out of life? It's not what we do. It's not the music we listen to. It's not what we're eating or drinking or the palace that we live in. It's who we share it with. And of course, the question is, well, is there an ultimate relationship where there's a God who made us and loves us and designed us for a relationship with Him? And that's where Jesus' story comes back in. Because Jesus meets this woman, and what He's talking to her about is the waters of life is relationship with God Himself. He says, I'm willing to give you the waters of life. I am God's gift to you. Now, it's a very large claim, and he's saying, he's not saying I can give you the waters of life. He's claiming to be the water of life. He's saying, if you know me, you have life in all its fullness. But if you don't know me, you don't have life in all its fullness. If you have him, uh, you have life. And if you don't have him... You only have counterfeit life, and you'll find other things to give your life meaning and purpose and joy that eventually will let you down. You are designed for a relationship with the God who made you, and if you lack a living relationship with the living God, you can survive for a while like a person uh, stranded on a life raft drinking salt water, like they can survive for six hours, but finally it'll kill them. You can survive for a while with counterfeits that meet your need for joy and purpose and meaning. You can create your own meaning and purpose, but ultimately, it will let you down. The promise Jesus gives is, come to me and I will be for you life to the full. Now, it's interesting that even Christians get this wrong. So I meant to put it up here, I forgot to put it in the slideshow, but I googled this week images of life to the full, right? And I went to Google images, and you know, the first, one of the first images that pops up is life to the full written on this photo of this guy in his 20s standing on top of a mountain, jumping into the air, you know, having climbed this mountain. You know, it's interesting that that's, you know, if that's what living life to the full is, then Jesus has nothing to offer a person in a wheelchair a person looking after elderly parents, a person who has a chronic illness. It's interesting that when we think of life to the full, 
We think of the ability, the autonomy to achieve what we want to achieve. And that leads us without any resources to deal with hardship, suffering when it comes. It's interesting, if you Google life to the full, you won't see a picture of a woman caring for a disabled child. You won't see a man helping feed his aging father. But that's what Jesus is offering us, because the real test that you have life, that you have satisfaction in life, joy in life, a purpose, meaning, is what happens when suffering comes into your life. Because suffering will take away everything else, but if you have something that is durably durable, then will you have life? And that's what Jesus offers us. He is the water of life that can't be taken from you. I met a guy outside after morning service, and he was exploring this with me, and he said, um, he said, my, my father, mother, and siblings all died last year, and I've been terribly sad about that. And he, and he said to me, you know, in, in many ways, he feels like they were my life, and now I don't have them. And of course, he ought to be sad, what makes life life is the relationships we're in, but life with God is something that can never be taken from Him. And that's what Jesus is offering us. Um, St. Augustine was one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the world. Um, maybe you've heard of him. Famous philosopher uh, and uh, Christian man. He grew up in North Africa. Uh, he was a Berber, so he likely had black skin. And uh, he was of a marginal race in the Roman Empire, and he longed to, to experience life, to, to, be, to be someone in the Roman Empire. And so he moved to Carthage, which was a cosmopolitan city in Africa, and uh, there started learning, did very well in the intellectual world, had many sexual partners, fell in love with many women, but he still wasn't happy or fulfilled. So then he moved to Rome, and he was moving up, made friends with many powerful people, but he was still empty on the inside. Finally, he ended up in Milan, the seat of the Roman Empire, and got a job in the imperial administration. He'd reached the top, but he still felt empty, and so he started reading philosophy, and Cicero in particular. And he realized what the philosophers were saying, that, you know, you're never going to be happy, uh, sex won't do it, family won't do it, success won't do it, intellectual attainments are not going to do it for you. You're never going to find absolute pleasure, joy, and success. And so Augustine started to read philosophy, and eventually he discovers Christianity. And when he discovered Christianity, he said, I realized my mistake was that I sought pleasure and truth not in God, but in his creatures, in myself, and in the other created beings. Saying that was my key mistake, trying to find the meaning of my life in myself, in other creatures, and the world around me. And then more famously, he said that to worship God is the deepest desire for humanity for, and this is what he says in a prayer to God, for God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. See, here's the revolutionary thing Augustine found. He, he says that what we're after, our deepest need, is to be known and loved by God who made us. And we are desperately restless 
until we find our rest in God. There's an emptiness. There's a cavity within us. And he found that if you love anything more than God, it will enslave you and it'll leave you empty. And he wasn't talking about bad things. He's talking about the very best things, family, relationships, uh, meaningful job, things like that. He says, love anything more than God and it'll enslave you. His point was not that we've got to love things in our life less, like I've got to love my wife less, my kids less, surfing less. No, what he's saying, you've got to love God more. And if you love God more than anything else, then you'll actually be free and you won't be enslaved to the things that you love. Um, John Piper gets at this in a little poem he wrote for his son at his wedding. Uh, at his wedding, a beautiful poem, you can Google it, and um, uh, he writes this poem to his son saying, love your wife, uh, love her more than wealth and friends and ease and sex and art and fame and breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. It's a beautiful poem. But then the poem turns and he concludes the poem with these surprising words. He says, the greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless, go love her more by loving her less. As a real, it's a very interesting poem because there's a paradox in there. How does that work? How can I love my, life, my wife more by loving her less than God? How does loving God above my wife actually mean my wife is more loved than if I didn't? I think this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know, if I don't love God more than my wife, I'll end up loving her poorly because I will crush her with my expectations. She's the greatest thing in my life above God, and she better well live that way, right? So I'll crush her with my expectations. I'll be crushed by her criticism because she's the most, you know, uh, I won't be able to take it if she fails me in any way because she's the thing I love more than anything else. If I find flaws in that, I'll be devastated. And so only if you love God more than your wife will you actually stop trying to make her do only the things God can do for you. You love her more by loving her less. And that's what Jesus come to bring, the waters of life. Yes, there's meaning in being married, in having kids, in working a great job, of being involved in serving people, but ultimate meaning, purpose, the waters of life comes from a relationship with Jesus. Now, come back to this story because isn't it interesting that Jesus is talking to this woman about the waters of life and she says, finally, yep, give me this waters of life. I'm up for it. And Jesus says, well, first of all, no, you need to go and call your husband and come back. And she says, I've got no husband. And then very gently, Jesus says back to her, yeah, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five and the guy you're living with right now is not your husband. Why does he say that? He's not changing the topic. He's still talking about water. See, where has she been drinking from? Where has she been trying to find life and love and freedom? In men. And it's absolutely failed her. She's been through five marriages. She's now with a guy. She's given up on the idea of marriage. She's just living with this guy. And what Jesus is doing, he's actually directing her to the puddle that she is drinking water from. 
And Jesus saying, hey, leave the puddle. Come to me as the fountain of life. Come to me and I will love you and I'll give you a purpose and I will set you free and you'll live life to the fullest. And that's what Jesus offers us. He offers us quality of life with him where we befriended by him and loved by him and where he is with us. Um, Marilyn Munro is back in our social imagination right now because Netflix has just done a biopic about her very sad life. And um, this is a photo of her when she was married to Arthur Miller, um, who was one of the greatest ever playwrights in America. And he writes about his time being married to Marilyn Monroe, Norma Jean was her real name, in his biography. And he writes about the time she was descending into deeper and deeper despair and darkness, which ultimately led to her death. And uh, she was on copious amounts of drugs just to help her rest and sleep. And here was a woman so envied by many women in the world, so desired by the men in the world, and so successful in many ways, and yet was so incurably sad and broken. And Miller spoke of this night when she was asleep, having downed a whole bunch of drugs to get her to rest. And he looked at her, and he wrote this in his biography. He said, I thought, what if she were able to wake up and I were able to say to her, God loves you, darling, and she were able to believe it. Now, it's intriguing, isn't it? Because he doesn't seem to be a religious man, Arthur Miller. But he just thinks in terms of this devastating, unstoppable spiral she's caught up in, that if she could only wake up and believe, secular man as he is, he thought that this might be the miracle that could break it for her and set her free. You know, God loves you. That's what Jesus is offering. Jesus has come to offer us the waters of life, a relationship with God. And the strange thing is, he comes and offers us this gift, and yet we are a little bit mistrustful. You know, you look at this woman at the start, she's hesitant. She's cynical. And that's because the only thing men have ever wanted from her is her body. Like, she doesn't trust this guy. And along walks Jesus, offering her the waters of life, and she's like, I'm not sure whether I want this. And he kind of has to um, argue her into it. You know, I once heard Ian Powell tell a story, and I'll finish with this. I once heard Ian Powell tell a story about the time the British outlawed slavery, and uh, as a result, they sent their boats down to the western side of Africa to kind of patrol the waters to ensure to kind of stop other countries from taking slaves away from Africa. And so the British Navy went down and they saw this one Portuguese ship and they chased after it, caught up to it after a day. And as they were about to board the ship, they realized that all the slaves had been loosed from their chains and given weapons to fight against their rescuers. The Portuguese had told the slaves, you see that boat chasing us down? They're going to come and kill you, so you better fight. And so here you have the slaves fighting against their rescuers. Some of them sadly died, but eventually the English got controlled 
and rescued the slaves. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, that is a little bit like the way Jesus has to deal with me. He comes full of love and kindness, having died for me. He comes to set me free and give me living water, but he finds me in denial about my slavery to the things of this world that I'm taking the bucket of my soul and scooping water from. He finds me in denial about my thirst and he finds me a little bit untrusting. And he finds me fighting against him, me not realizing that his only intention is love. Yes, he will bring, bring, yes, he will bring big changes to our life that sometimes feel uncomfortable, but always and only because he wants us to have water for our souls. So what is the key to life? Jesus says, come to me and you will have a well of water welling up to eternal life. See, the thing about a pool of water, you can throw stuff into a pool of water and it just becomes dirty and mucky and filthy, but a spring of living water keeps pumping living water. doesn't matter how much crap you've got in it, it'll keep bubbling up fresh living water. And that's what Jesus offers you. Life to the full, independent of whatever's going on in your life, comes from a relationship with Him and forgiveness that He offers. That's the key to life and love and freedom. And Vine Church, that's what we're here to offer our Sydney city. And we hope that they receive this gift because it is a great gift. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give you so much thanks for the life, the love, the freedom the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. And we pray that more and more people in our city might come to know this gift. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, Toby.